Well, good morning and uh, welcome. Welcome to the Hoover Institution. Welcome to Stanford University. Uh, this is a very, very special and historic moment. And uh, we have together, at least for the first time publicly, uh, the uh, intelligence chiefs of what's called the Five Eyes. And um, I just have to say a word about that before I introduce them. Um, obviously, the Five Eyes being the United States, Australia, New Zealand, U the UK, and Canada. But um, I was National Security Advisor on September 11th. And um, I cannot relay to you the shock of that day to see planes flying into buildings in New York. Uh, the Pentagon had been hit. A plane had gone down in Pennsylvania. Uh, we did not know what had hit us, and we didn't understand why. And I just want to say that at that moment, um, and I'm sure Chris would join me in saying this, to have allies like we had at that time. Uh, the Five Eyes very quickly organized uh, to be uh, the backbone of intelligence for us at a critical time for the United States of America. And I just want to thank you on behalf of uh, the United States for this terrific partnership that we have uh, that protects freedom, protects free peoples, and um, I know that what you do every day is hard, but uh, we're, we're grateful for what you do, and we're so happy to have you here. Thank you. So here at Hoover, uh, we are uh, very proud of the fact that we take on hard problems. We try to bring the best uh, data-driven evidence and research to understanding those hard problems. Uh, when our founder, Herbert Hoover, thought about what we would do, he talked about improving the human condition. But he talked about it uh, in terms of improving it, in terms of values of private enterprise, of individual liberty, of limited government. In other words, uh, he believed that democracies were uh, at the core of improving the human condition. And as I said, these gentlemen represent, if you will, the eyes and ears of democracy to protect ourselves. And so we're going to have a conversation today uh, about those issues of protection, but also protection of what? Protection of innovation, protection of technological progress, the partnerships that need to be developed with places like ours here at Stanford, where a lot of that technical, technological innovation is taking place. And we'll talk about how adversaries wish to take advantage of the openness of our societies, but how in countering them, we have to remember that we are indeed open societies and that what's makes, that's what makes us different from our adversaries. Um, I'm gonna start by asking uh, our colleagues on the stage to just introduce themselves and maybe just a word about who they are and how they got to where they are, and then I'm gonna do a little round robin of questions, so we'll start at the end. Thank you, you so much. It's Mike Burgess. Um, I'm the Director of General Security, that is Australia's Security Service. I'm an electronics engineer that somehow found himself in charge of Australia's Security Service with no deliberate intent. Um, I've had a background in the private sector and government, principally signals intelligence, but for the last four years I've been the head of Australia's Security Service. It's great to be here. 
Bonjour, uh, my name is David Vingo. I'm the director of the Keynes Security Intelligence Service. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Rice, for the invitation. Um, we are here because of a very important topic, but in terms of how uh, we each got into our job, you know, the ability to do something every day to uh, protect your citizens, uh, that's been the driving force. Uh, I've had a chance to work in intelligence, national security, and defense throughout my career and uh, making a difference every day is, was, is uh, getting out of bed in the morning. So thank you for being here. Uh, kia ora koutou. My name is Andrew Hampton. I'm the Director General of the New Zealand Security Intelligence Service. Um, prior to this role, I headed up for seven years the um, GCSB, the Government um, Communication Security Bureau, which is our signal intelligence and um, cybersecurity agency and prior to that I've um, worked across government. I too am very pleased to be part of um, this event today. One of the um, key things about national security is it's a team sport. It requires people working together, the strong partnership we have across the five eyes, but also the partnerships we have across the economy and I look forward to talking about that more. Thank you. I'm Ken McCallum, the Director General of MI5, the British Security Service. I've spent 27 years in MI5 keeping the UK safe. Uh, along the way I have gained experience in other parts of government but essentially I am a career spook having grown up uh, in uh, operational roles in the organisation, running human sources, that kind of classic uh, fieldcraft and latterly obviously in more leadership level positions. Chris, and uh, this is uh, our FBI Director Christopher Ray. And Chris, uh, you can introduce yourself in any way that you'd like, but of course you can tell them that we once worked together uh, before. Uh, but I also, uh, why are we here? And uh, why are we here at Stanford? But why are the five of you together at this particular moment in time? So over to you. Well, so as you say, Condi, we worked together uh, and you referenced a time that uh, I know was emblazoned on, on everybody's memory and certainly ours. Um, I've been the FBI director now for a little over six years. I was a line prosecutor for a while. I was in the Justice Department's leadership uh, on 9-11 and spent most of 9-11 itself and that night and the day after and the night after that and the day after that and the night after that in FBI headquarters. And that was a time when the world changed, although it changed kind of overnight. Um, today, we're gathered together uh, in a way that is unprecedented. Uh, what's not unprecedented is all of us getting together. We do that all the time. Uh, and we're not only all great partners, but great friends. But what is unprecedented, at least in our uh, experience and knowledge, is all five of uh, these services heads appearing publicly together at one time. Uh, and that unprecedented meeting is because we're dealing with now another unprecedented threat. Uh, and there is no greater threat to innovation than the Chinese government. Uh, and it is a measure of how seriously the five of us and our services take that threat that we have chosen to come together to try to highlight that, raise awareness, raise resilience, uh, and work closely with the private sector to try to build better protection uh, for uh, innovation, especially in a place like Northern California, but really across all, all five of our countries. Yeah. Let's start with uh, the threats to innovation. I, and I'd like to eventually come back to some of the opportunities that we have, but 
Let's start with uh, how you do see the threats uh, from uh, the People's Republic of China. And by the way, there are other adversaries as well uh, who would be on that, that dock. Uh, I would suspect that the, the Russian Federation uh, might be a, a country of concern. Uh, not to mention others like the Iranians and others. It's not as just as if China is the only country that's after our innovation, but they've been they've been uh, a particular concern and a particular challenge in some particular ways. And so um, I'm going to start at the end again and um, ask you, Mike, to talk a little bit about how you see that challenge from the PRC and why why you might see it as different from some of the others that I've outlined. Yes, certainly, thank you. So um, I think the fact that we're holding this summit here with the heads of security services and representatives from the tech and innovation sector speaks something about the nature of this threat and our ability to resolve it. And it's important to start that conversation about how we see China and maybe others in the context of, I recognise up front that all nations spy. All nations seek secrets and all nations seek strategic advantage. But the behaviour we're talking about here goes well beyond traditional espionage. And the threat is that we have the Chinese government engaged in the most sustained, scaled and sophisticated theft of intellectual property and acquisition of expertise that is unprecedented in human history. And that's why we're together. And that's why I'm, as Australia's security service head, calling that behaviour out. And importantly, um, we shouldn't be defeatist about this. Um, the Chinese, to their credit, are very clear about where they want to innovate and what they need in their own national sovereign interest, which is fine and entirely appropriate. The problem with that is they're engaged in wholesale intellectual property theft and the acquisition of expertise through means which is exploiting our open and collaborative DNA used against us, because it's when that expertise is linked with the intellectual property stolen that the harm is amplified and that threat really does need to be drawn out, awareness raised, so together we can all do something about it. Would others like to comment on this particular point, which is uh, how the PRC goes about this? And, and by the way, uh, they haven't been exactly quiet about their desire uh, to challenge the United States in terms, in terms of technological uh, superiority. Uh, Xi Jinping actually gave a speech in which he said, that China will surpass the United States in AI and in quantum and in others. So they haven't been quiet about that. Um, so how do you think, that you said they're exploiting our openness, uh, but they also are uh, pretty well organized. Is that part of the story as well? I mean, they, the, I think the challenge that they present is um, both scale uh, and breadth. So scale in terms of, for example, cyber intrusions as part of their means to steal intellectual property, they have a bigger hacking program than that of every other major nation combined. Combine that with human intelligence operations, which include not just traditional spies engaged in stealing trade secrets from, from private businesses and research institutions, but also tasking all sorts of non-traditional collectors and recruiting insiders inside businesses uh, and other institutions. And then layered on top of that, in the private sector in particular, um, seemingly innocuous joint ventures, investments, other kinds of transactions which are designed to facilitate or enable the threat. So part of what makes it so challenging is all of those tools deployed in tandem 
uh, at a scale uh, that the likes of which we've never seen. Yeah. So um, on the question, uh, again, I'm going to just stay with, with China for a moment because uh, they've identified it as the sort of biggest uh, issue out there. Um, why might they be right about what they're trying to do? Uh, and then I'll get to the converse there. Why might they be wrong? So why might they be right about what they're trying to do? I'd like to talk about that. Now that's a big and interesting question. <laughs> As Mike said a moment ago, uh, we shouldn't be necessarily sort of foaming with moral outrage that states look to gain advantage, but our job is to look to protect what we see as the crucial advantages that our democratic nations enjoy today. Emerging technologies have such potential to change our world in quite fundamental ways that I think we should all care about where that power you know, flows and goes. If you are working at the cutting edge of technology today, you might not be interested in geopolitics, but geopolitics is certainly interested in you. And so my organization, MI5, has for many years obviously worked to protect government secrets, military secrets. We've worked for generations to protect our national critical infrastructure. But these days, as Chris has been saying, the things that need protecting are way wider than that. It is no longer about government and a small number of large companies. It is about raw research taking place in universities just like Stanford. It's about promising startup companies. It's about innovative spin-outs doing interesting things off the back of research taking place in our universities. And so lots of people who perfectly understandably may not previously have thought that national security had anything to do with them do need to think about this in a new way. So that's why we are seeking to work in a different form of partnership and le reach lots of people across our nations who haven't previously had to think in these terms. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, this issue of uh, partnerships. But first, I'm going to ask the, the uh, other side of my question. So they might be right because it sounds uh, what my friends at the Pentagon like to, used to call a target-rich environment. In other words, there are lots of ways that they could uh, access this technology. There are lots of ways that they could steal IP. Um, obviously, there are people who do joint ventures. There's university mm. research. There's all of that. Uh, but there is also a question of, will they be good at it? Are they going to get this right? And what you're saying, uh, Ken, is uh, they'll be good at it unless we have a response to it. Mm. So uh, let's talk about what that response might be, because I think one of the concerns is that the response can't be one that uh, compromises our ability to innovate. And our ability to innovate is also very much driven by our creativity, which is driven by our openness. So how do we uh, think about a challenge, uh, how, how do we think about dealing with this challenge when uh, we don't want to look like China in doing it? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So Andrew. New Zealand has a very open economy. We are a trading nation. Our tech sector is now our second biggest export earner. And key to driving that growth in our tech sector has been innovation, has been um, an ability, a, a keenness to collaborate with others, um, both for research purposes, also for for investment, and that's a really, really good thing. Um, the challenges 
with it, though, is that openness, as we've already touched on, presents a range of threats. So a key part of um, how we need to respond to that is firstly being able to raise awareness about the nature of the, the threat. So my agency a couple of um, weeks ago released our annual threat assessment, which looked at the full spectrum of threats facing New Zealand, but one that we identified and called out was this threat of foreign interference, threat of espionage, including cyber, enabled espionage, and identified some of the countries who were doing that, including the People's Republic of China. But it's all very well to say, well, look, there's this big scary problem there. What do you actually do about it? And, and key to that is being able to um, share best practice. Mm -hmm. How do you go about mitigating those, those threats? And between our agencies, we've got a lot of, lot of knowledge, and um, one of the things that is a feature of this summit is um, releasing some, some principles to help um, better inform innovators around the types of threats we face and what they can do about it. But that's only half of the equation. The, the other part of it is organisations like ours engaging with the, the private sector, because not only will you be seeing things that we don't see, you'll um, have ideas on how to, how to to mitigate it. So for us, the key, key thing is awareness, having your eyes open, and being able to, to share that best practice to manage the threat. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, David, you... Yeah, thank you, uh, Kandi. Maybe uh, another way to look at it, and you mentioned uh, uh, openness before, and I think is to look at you know, what has made us successful over the years, what has made you know, uh, innovation you know, uh, driving the prosperity and the security of our countries. And um, I think you know, what we're trying to do is to be very clear-eyed about that, making sure we protect that advantage of openness, making sure that our universities, our research centers continue to operate, attract the talent from everywhere and anywhere around the world, including from China. But you also need to understand that, you know, unfortunately, the rules of engagement, the rules of the games have changed. Um, we see the, the PRC, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, passing legislation to force any person of Chinese origin anywhere in the world to support their intelligence service. So that means they have ways of coerce people here, you know, in our, each of our countries, anywhere, to essentially tell them and give them the secrets that you know, they, are, uh, they are working on. And so what we are trying to do here in, in the spirit of that partnership is to take the knowledge and awareness that we have and bring it to, to you in your own respective way as experts working with government to find the right frameworks so that we can enable that openness, transparency, and, and innovation, but at the same time do it in a way that you know, will protect what is you know, important for us, freedom, uh, you know, democracy, you know, freedom from interference and coercion as well. And I think this is where that partnership is absolutely critical. Well, you, yes, go ahead. So I think uh, that Andrew and David have, have put it rather well. For us in the UK, the centre of our approach is partnership. There's a special part of MI5, the National Protective Security Authority, that looks to share guidance and advice with our private sector, with our universities. And the point of that advice is it's not a list of things that we sort of draw up in our own bunker in MI5. Those bits of guidance are co-created with people in the sectors to be pragmatic, to be workable, to avoid stifling the very openness and innovation that you're trying to protect in the first place. It would be a false victory if we made the average startup as hard an intelligence target as MI5 should be. That's not the aim here. 
Uh, the aim is to work in partnership, and we are confident that we are making progress. So the five principles that we are launching today, uh, which are, will be adopted across all of our organizations, are, uh, we think, an important step in taking that partnership approach further, not just to have sort of balkanized approaches within each of our nations, mm -hmm. but to do this sort of linking arms together. Are you going to keep us in the dark as to the five principles? <laughs> <laughs> so what I would say is, if oh, you... Oh, apparently, apparently it's supposed to be released later. All right, I get it now. Yeah. All right, yes. If you think this applies to you, please go on the website and have a look at the, at the guidance. I can reel off the principles if you wish, yeah. but it's probably not the best use of your finite time, Dr. Rice. <laughs> oh, I don't know. No. <laughs> Sorry, Dr. Rice. If I, if a I may. key theme Sorry. running through the principles and what we've talked about is, you know, there's a, there's a real risk to think that you have security at one end and innovation at the other, and it's very difficult to um, find the middle ground when the reality is they're entirely compatible. You know, um, innovation is key to, to national security. We rely on innovation to be able to keep ahead of the threat. At the same time, um, innovators will have more valuable, more marketable products if they build security into it at the, at the front end. Mm -hmm. Good. Uh, let me turn to uh, the technologies themselves, and uh, there are really kind of two parts of this. One is, what are, are, to the degree that you can talk about it, what are adversaries most interested in uh, trying to get their hands on, so to speak? I mean, we, these emerging technologies are pretty remarkable. When you think about what AI is and can do, uh, one of the ones that we follow very closely here at the Hoover Institution through the work that we do with a bioengineer, Drew Indy, is the uh, emergence of synthetic biology. And there we have not just whether somebody might try to steal it, but what, whether somebody might try to use it. Because if you think a pandemic right now looks bad, think about a pandemic that is actually tailored to uh, a population or the like. And so. Uh, you've got both the protection in the sense of not having people use them in adverse ways, but also what are they trying to steal so that they might be able to use them in adverse ways. So talk a little bit about what you're seeing out there uh, on that landscape um, in, in terms of these emerging technologies. By the way, a little bit of a, a, a commercial uh, for the Hoover Institution. Uh, we are going to release uh, on November 14th the Stanford Emerging Technology Review. Jennifer Whittem, the Dean of Engineering, and I are co-chairing that. It's uh, Hoover's opportunity to work with our scientists and engineers to identify where these uh, emerging technologies are going, AI, nano, quantum, space, uh, and to then make that available to policymakers so that uh, when you give these briefings, Perhaps they'll understand a little bit better uh, what it is you're talking about, because uh, I won't speak for the other capitals, but I do know in Washington people have learned to spell AI now. I'm not quite sure that they know what it means. So uh, let, me, let me turn to this question of what you're really seeing out there in a little bit more, it's a little bit more granular way. So obviously in terms of which technologies, the list probably wouldn't surprise anybody here. You know, obviously it's AI, it's quantum, it's biotech, it's robotics, it's autonomy, which is a variation on some of the, some of the same. But uh, with almost every one of these technologies, uh, we have sort of the same reaction. The first reaction is, wow, we can do that? And then 
Oh, no. <laughs> yes, who else can do that? Uh, and we're constrained and very proud of the fact that we're constrained by the rule of law. But what we worry about is adversaries uh, who don't have those constraints and can get access to the same technology. So take something like AI as an example. Obviously, we're all looking to try to use AI to try to advance our own operations, but we're constrained and we're trying to do that very thoughtfully and in a measured way. We worry about AI as a, uh, an amplifier for uh, all sorts of misconduct. Uh, taking Right now, where it's most dangerous is essentially taking junior varsity uh, bad actors and bringing them to the varsity level, but in fairly short order, we're going to be seeing AI taking the varsity level athletes and taking them to a whole nother level of dangerousness. Uh, but you could use uh, AI now to find vulnerabilities um, that can be exploited, AI to write code to exploit those vulnerabilities, AI to conduct more sophisticated sphere phishing efforts, which the Chinese, among others, use very actively, AI to enhance things like virtual kidnappings, where parents get a call and they think their child's been kidnapped, but now AI uh, can mimic your child's voice, mm -hmm. so it sounds even more credible. Uh, those are just a few examples. Mm -hmm. We're also worried about the theft of AI, uh, because America leads the world in AI technology, and so the Chinese are keenly interested in stealing our AI. And so then when you come back to China, it's sort of the, the convergence of those two things together. The theft with then the ability to misuse it. And in their case, uh, AI, since they have stolen more personal and corporate data than any other nation by orders of magnitude, if you think, think about what AI can do to help leverage that data, to take what's already the largest hacking program in the world by a country mile, and make it that much more effective. Uh, that's that's what we were. Yeah, about. more data training the model on on more data. Yeah, do you want to go at this again? So when it comes to AI use by our adversaries, I think there's a there's a limited extent to which I want to give good ideas to bad people. But as <laughs> as Chris has reflected there, there is you know real concern amongst our organisations that uh, AI over time and potentially sooner than we might think, will give various of our adversaries, both sophisticated adversaries mm -hmm. and less sophisticated adversaries, new ideas, new access to dangerous knowledge. Coming back to something you mentioned towards the start of our conversation, the flip side, of course, is that used ethically, lawfully, intelligently, AI can help organizations like ours protect our societies. You know, in MI5, for example, just to, to use an example that's not right at the cutting edge, but just gives a flavor, we collect thousands and thousands of hours of audio data in lots of interesting places every, every week, every month. I won't get into, you can imagine the tiny microphones that we might plant lawfully in certain locations to achieve that. But what that means is we end up with a lot of audio product that we need quickly to translate into knowledge that is searchable. And the best means of doing that is to have AI scan across the material that you have, mm. translate it into the, the language that you need to analyze it in, and rapidly pick out the things that might be clues to activity of concern. So all of these technologies, even in our particular domain, present real opportunities as well as risks. Yeah, I think that's really always the case. You've got opportunity, you've got risk. And uh, we're going to talk more about uh, the uh, mitigating the risk, but I want to go more to the opportunity side since you've, you've raised it. 
Uh, one of the uh, criticisms of uh, government, not just intelligence, but of government in general, is that it is not fully exploiting the emerging technologies on behalf of our democracies because, oh, I could make the list. Bureaucracies are slow to adapt. Uh, procurement processes are really very, very difficult. If you're a young company sitting out here in Silicon Valley and you don't have a, a, an army of lobbyists uh, to go and sell your product, uh, you really can't deal with 18-month uh, re requests for proposals. And so, in fact, uh, agencies like yours or agencies, certainly the Pentagon, are missing the opportunity to do what you just said, Ken, which is to, to take what's out there, maybe even take it off the shelf, and use it to good purposes. So while we're thinking about how to keep the Chinese from stealing, are we fully exploiting our own technological advantage? I'll tell you just a quick little story that we're talking about the sad events in the Middle East these days. But um, as you know, uh, small satellites are making a huge difference now in, in coverage, uh, all out of the private sector. Uh, what it takes our uh, NRO, our, our, our National Reconnaissance Organization, to build a satellite uh, is kind of like building the Great Pyramids. Now, uh, when you Think about that, think about me as National Security Advisor when I was actually trying to get the Israelis to stop building settlements outward. And uh, had I been waiting for overhead imagery from uh, the intelligence community to do that, uh, I might have been waiting for a long time. Instead, I was doing what was called Google Earth. So I would point and say, you know, it looks like to me that's going sideways. So. Using these uh, technologies that can be uh, very valuable, how do you think about that? You've mentioned that MI5 is trying to do this. How about others on, on this? Do you want to start and we'll come back this yeah, way, sure. Mike, and then David, and then and then. So Andrew. firstly, I think, yes, you've raised a great challenge to us in, the, in the, the, this line of business and in government of the challenge of how do you use the best of what's out there and how do you move quickly like the private sector does. Mm. I think that's one of the great strengths of innovation and tech sector. You, we do move quickly and it's brilliant to see. Um, and we do, like our colleagues here, look for the opportunity and we will use AI. But can I just throw a different perspective on you? Because your challenge is absolutely right. Um, remember, we're security services. We're subject to the rule of law and we live in a democracy that we're trying to protect. We also have to consider if we just massively engage rapidly on new ideas, our license to operate might be questioned. Mm. Because you might go to, I'm sorry, it's great that that gives my organisation the ability to quickly find a threat to security. Now, we will do that proportionately, but others in our society would rightly go, hang on, you're going to do facial biometrics on everyone in the country at any moment in time because it would make our job easier. I'm not suggesting we do that. I'm not asking to do that. <laughs> but you can see how we have to counter that in terms of our license to operate. But of course we do look for the opportunity and actually we are. I mean, I've created in my organisation an Office of Future Technical Advisor to me and we are challenging ourselves because one of the most favourite, most popular phrasings my own workforce because they're great people well trained to do great work every day is that's not how we do it. We're trying to disrupt ourselves by rapidly adapting bright ideas from the private sector, applying to our mission, but in a way that's considerate of our license to operate and the fact that we have to be proportionate to the threats we face and everything we have to do is lawful. Yes. 
Yeah, I do. Uh, I totally agree with, uh, with Mike's point. One of the largest impediments for us is, uh, is cultural, is essentially is finding a way for, uh, for our officers or uh, our experts to think differently, uh, our engineers and computer scientists to think that they do not necessarily need to develop their own technology to be able to apply it in a way because there are, there are um, the innovation and the pace at which you know, uh, the private sector will innovate will never be able to do that. The question is, you know, how can we uh, legally, safely uh, operate you know, with these technologies in our environment, with the oversight you know, that we have and so on, but that cultural uh, um, uh, reticence from our organization is something we need to break. The fact that we have uh, top secret clearances that we operate in an environment we're very comfortable with, so breaking down these silos is one of the most important uh, uh, aspects that we can do. And that's why we are here. That's why we want to engage. And each and every one of us uh, are spending a lot more time working with what we in the past called non-traditional partners, you know, universities, research centers, venture capital, to be able to do all of this. And, and this is the kind of ecosystem that we, if we go back to the openness of our system and the, the uh, opportunities, that's the only way we'll be able to, uh, to be prosperous and secure in the future. David, you, you had with you um, folks from the private sector um, when uh, we had dinner last night. Uh, talk about how it's been in engaging that part of the, the community. Are people open to the idea? Now, we did have some stories here in the Valley a few years ago about uh, companies that did not wish to engage with the Pentagon or the intelligence services or whatever. Uh, so that's the cultural divide is on, or the, the, the cultural change is needed on both sides. But are you having success on the private sector side? I'd like to think so, uh, but I think it uh, requires a high degree of humility. Uh, we come with a lot of stigma attached to what we have been doing. Uh, we come with, you know, uh, after 9-11, you know, there are a number of practices that have been put in place in each of our organizations that may not, you know, uh, have, uh, have uh, tested with the passage of time have, you know, uh, resulted in, in the kind of outcomes we wanted. But we need to overcome that. And, and I think, you know, one of the best way is, you know, to engage in a, in a very um, personal way. So uh, we have been, you know, engaging with our uh, business community. Mm -hmm. And uh, when, you know, five, six years ago, when, you know, the, uh, every analyst would continue to say that, you know, that investment in China was absolutely the way to go. You know, uh, you would go to uh, uh, Bay Street or Wall Street, you know, and, and that was the thing to do. And we would come from the intelligence community and say, well, wait a second, there are this aspect, there is this new legislation, there is these, uh, these practices. But again, we need to go out of our way to give concrete examples because it's not enough to cry wolf. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to engage and unfortunately, um, or fortunately, depends how you look at it, but the PRC has been, you know, and Xi Jinping has been the best advocate for all of us to do more of what we do right. because they've been so bold uh, about what they're doing, how they have been stealing, you know, intellectual property, how they have interfered in our democratic processes, how they have uh, been, you know, engaging on campuses uh, of all places to interfere. So I think, you know, the job has been done to a large extent also by the PRC to show what the threat was. And, you know, we, we, we have not talked uh, too much about other actors, but it's the exact same thing with, uh, with Russia, for example, now post-invasion of Ukraine, everybody's put a lot of sanctions on them. One of the things we try to do with the private sector is to say, 
be on the lookout because now what they cannot do through a front door, they're going to do it through the back door. So front companies, agents, you know, that are going to be cutting out, you know, from different countries to, to get the technology. We had, in the, uh, I'll finish on that, we had in a, um, a very difficult discussion with a business uh, leader in Canada where we essentially were able to show that person that, you know, we had discovered uh, working with our recurring partners that some of components of, of uh, high-tech guidance, you know, had been used in, in uh, Russian drones to, to kill Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. And absolutely unbeknownst to that business leader. And so that engagement, us taking that information, finding the right way of having classified information, share with the, those individuals, a tangible example like that goes a long way. Yeah, good. Um, Andrew, yeah. Both in my current role, but also in my seven years in the cybersecurity and signal intelligence um, agency, I've seen significant changes on both sides, both on the agency side and on the private sector side in terms of engagement around national security issues. You know, agencies like ours do need to show that we have something of value to offer, and often that is knowledge about the threats, the sharing of the best practice that we have um, talked about. It's also us being open to um, different ideas and different ways of doing our jobs than we traditionally have. So, you know, when, when I started in the business, there was a big focus on we had to build everything ourselves. Increasingly, we're now um, using open source products or products that we get from the, from the private sector. Um, you know, in the, in the area of regulation, gone are the days where agencies like ours can prescribe to private sector, you know, the um, steps that they need to take to, to manage their risks. It's more focused on, well, what is the outcome that we're all trying to achieve and how can we work together? But when you get um, the balance right, agencies like ours bringing our national security um, expertise to the table in the private sector with their scale and impact, when it, when it works well, it is really impressive. You know, in, in New Zealand, um, our cybersecurity agency has entered into a series of partnerships with a range of managed service providers and network operators where we provide them in real time with um, cyber threat feeds, which they then scale out to all of their customers. They provide a reach that we never would be able to. It's an example of security by design. That's what we want to do, because national security it has to be has to be a team sport. It can't be left up to agencies like ours. Absolutely. Yeah, Chris? You know, post 9-11, everybody talked about a paradigm shift in terms of how we approached security. And I think that we are now in the midst of a paradigm shift in the way in which services, agencies like ours, engage with the private sector. Um, to make that a little more concrete, you know, the FBI has an entire office of the private sector with an assistant director who meets with me every morning. We, every field office, all 56 field offices, have a private sector coordinator uh, and an academia coordinator. <laughs> Our cyber squads are out constantly engaging, sharing information with companies to try to help them better not only harden uh, their infrastructure, but often some of the more sophisticated companies are now working with us to conduct joint operations to disrupt adversaries. And along the way, the conversation has started flowing more and more in both directions. So to your point about opportunities for innovation, you know, we're coming in with the mindset of we're here to help you and how to help you protect yourself. But now more and more companies are starting to say to us, 
we've got this great idea about how you can be even better at protecting us. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that's the sort of virtuous cycle that we're trying to uh, accelerate. Uh, and we're seeing it happen more and more. I think part of the reason it's so important to have this topic focus on in a place like this is because so much of the innovation is happening in very small startup type companies and somewhere between four guys in a garage and a big thriving business is a transformation where the technology has advanced to the point where it's of keen interest to China in particular but also other adversaries but the sophistication about protecting that innovation hasn't grown with it yeah. and so we're constantly looking for ways not just to engage with the big blue chip companies but uh, the VC community and companies that are more at the front end of, of a lot of these technologies, because that's where the innovation is, that's where the attack surface uh, is moving. Uh, well, let's talk about this place and places like this, because uh, the private sector, uh, we've talked about some of the, the cultural uh, impediments to, to dealing with it on both sides. Uh, maybe those are finally starting to be overcome. Uh, universities are a very special part of the ecosystem as well. And Stanford in particular is a big part of the innovation uh, system, the innovation ecosystem, and has been for um, our entire history, really. And uh, it sort of defines Stanford that this is a place where people make uh, discoveries, they find a way to put them into the mainstream in terms of commercialization. Uh, they spawn companies like Hewlett Packard and uh, the you know, Sun Microsystems was actually Stanford University Network and, uh, and Google and others through our graduate students, through our students, uh, through our faculty. Uh, that's kind of who we are. And so uh, then we sit with um, our colleagues and they say, well, but that's great and you need to keep doing that, but you need to be aware of how others might exploit that. And if openness is the hallmark of democracies, super openness is the hallmark of universities. Um, I can tell you having been provost that nobody actually runs a university. You need to understand that. <laughs> so um, in our environment, how do you think about us, the university, and how do you think about engaging us, the university, recognizing that universities are made up of lots of people in lots of places, most of which, uh, most of whom operate pretty independently. So you all have uh, universities that you're trying to do this with, but I'm going to start with you, Chris, and we'll just go right down the road. So we have, I think, found over time that uh, using openness uh, in a different sense to go along with the openness you're describing, which is more information sharing by us with universities about the threats, and that can take either the form of things to be on the lookout for, so universities can make more thoughtful decisions, uh, or in the case of specific targeting, very specific uh, technical indicators, things like that, of a, of a particular compromise, whether it's human or cyber. But the approach, again, is to try to share information to be more open on our end with the universities so that universities can make decisions to protect themselves because at the end of the day, the same information that we're trying to protect from a national security perspective is intellectual property that represents really hard work and research by academics uh, in an institution like Stanford. And so what we have found 
and I've seen it firsthand over the last six years, uh, is that more and more universities have responded well to that mm -hmm. uh, and have reciprocated by wanting to engage more. We have universities uh, around this country now where they've set aside office space for the FBI. Uh, you know, a decade ago, you would have that would have been unthinkable. Uh, not yet, Stanford. Uh, well, you know, it, <laughs> yeah, a very competitive yeah. institution, peer pressure. Uh, <laughs> but I think the the reason is they've recognized the value of that, um, and I think to be uh, blunt about it, obviously a lot of the most sensitive research is federally funded, yeah. and the federal government um, agencies, not like security services, but the grant making agencies, have become more surgical and more thoughtful and more precise about what it is that they expect if taxpayer dollars uh, are going to be used. There's nothing inherently wrong with talent plans, but talent plans, if abused, uh, are vehicles to steal intellectual property yeah, to fund China's resurgence China, right. yeah. uh, at American taxpayer expense. Yeah. So um, the more we can have openness be uh, have the virtues of openness without the pitfalls of naivete is, yeah. has kind of been the focus we've had. And you've been very vocal, and I want to give you a chance to, to say it, because some of the early efforts uh, seem to imply that um, ethnic background was uh, a reason to be suspicious. And obviously, in the United States of America, uh, we don't judge people by uh, their ethnic background, and to the degree that Asian Americans felt uh, somehow that they were in the crosshairs. I've heard you address it. Would you right. address it now? So I have tried every time I've delivered prepared remarks to add this, uh, which is for us, this is the threat we're talking about is the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party. It's not the Chinese people, and it sure as heck is not Chinese Americans. In fact, in fact, an awful lot of the time, the victims of the CCP's efforts are Chinese Americans. Um, and we haven't talked about it a whole lot yet in this summit, but to go along with the theft of innovation and intellectual property is a, essentially transnational repression where uh, the Chinese government uh, reacting very much to the openness we have. Openness allows dissent and criticism of the, uh, of the Xi Jinping regime. Uh, and if there's one thing they can't stand, it's criticism. And so uh, a lot of times that criticism is coming on campuses and they've engaged in efforts that some of these are, are you know, we've talked about publicly, where you have a Chinese American student in a major university who dares to uh, speak glowingly about the Tiananmen Square protesters. And within less than 24 hours, the Chinese security services pay a visit to his family back in China, and his parents call him frantically saying, whoa, what are you doing? You know, it's one thing to repress their population in China, but to then bring it here into the United States onto our campuses, uh, I think underscores uh, the difference between Chinese Americans as not the culprits, but in many cases the victims, and the Chinese government, which is absolutely the biggest threat this country faces. Yeah. Let me ask uh, um, if we go down the line here, there's another aspect to the university, uh, which is talent. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we've talked about these emerging technologies, uh, you talked about the engineers, uh, you know, there are a lot of those people here. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you recruit the best talent when um, it's 
and you've got lots of competitors for that talent. Uh, you have great universities as well, um, Ken. So why don't you talk a little bit about the talent recruitment issue? So MI5 and its partner agencies in the UK, we look to recruit the best talent based on the compelling nature of our mission. We are there to keep our country safe. When people join MI5 on their first day and I get the chance to talk to them, I say, look, you are not going to be a billionaire working here. You're certainly not going to be famous, but you will have the chance to spend your talent working alongside other dedicated, selfless people in a noble cause. And that is the primary way in which we manage to reach very talented people who undoubtedly could earn more uh, in other walks of life. But we do succeed in managing to recruit and retain some really capable, talented people. And it's a pleasure for me to have a moment here to pay tribute to them. Alongside which, we also work in close partnership with talented people in other contexts, in universities, in startups, in larger companies, because we don't always need to have all of the talent sort of locked into our permanent workforce. And so that ability to partner is central both to the way in which we try to help uh, our economy protect itself, but it's also central to how we harness the best innovation. So we do obviously need to have significant numbers of capable, talented, specialist people inside MI5, but that's not the whole story. The partnership piece is the other bit there. And just briefly on, on your previous yes, question around how we work with universities. So alongside the five principles that we're launching today, in the UK we're launching our Secure Innovation Guidance, which is aimed at startups and investors. That's one of our campaigns. We already have a campaign called Trusted Research, developed in collaboration with our academic sector. And that campaign has really helped shift the conversation. We, d we recently did a survey and 84% of the universities who'd received that guidance have adjusted how they make decisions, how they think about some of these threats. It would be crazy for any of us to try to close down the fundamental openness of our universities. But you probably don't want a PhD student in advanced robotics to be sponsored by the People's Liberation Army in your university. So this is not about changing the dial on the overall default towards open collaboration, joint research, that sort of expeditionary attitude that academia must rightly prize, but it is about having your eyes open to the most egregious forms of risk. Um, there definitely is a war for talent on at the moment, and talent's probably winning at the moment. There's high demand for the people with the skills and expertise that we need, like the others. We have had quite a bit of success in attracting great people to come and work for our agencies, and partly that is because of the, the mission. You know, we've, we've had to pay our people more to be more competitive. But there's another aspect of talent which is really fundamental to, um, to the New Zealand agencies, and I, I think to the Five Eyes agencies as well, as having a workforce that better reflects the communities that we mm. serve. So our workforce is looking less and less like me and more and more like the diverse country that New Zealand is. Now that's fundamental for a few reasons. Firstly, we want the best people from any, any ethnic background to come and work, work for us. Secondly, we want to have the diversity of thought that comes with those different backgrounds, those different experiences. Third one, though, is it's fundamental to public trust and confidence, which we've talked about. For agencies like ours, who operate mainly in secret, who have um, intrusive but authorised powers, 
the public doesn't always get to see everything we do, so they need to be satisfied that the people inside the organisations broadly reflect their, their values. So you know we've been doing a range of things like scholarships, grad programmes and, and the like to really both grow a diverse workforce but just as importantly an inclusive workplace where that um, difference is, is valued. And I think that's another one of the strengths that our Five Eyes um, agencies have compared to um, some of the countries we're concerned about. You know, when it comes to recruiting, I, I would say three things, you know, mission, challenge, and variety. So mission, you know, our mission is to protect the American people and uphold the Constitution, and I will stack that mission up against any companies or universities, quite frankly, anywhere in the world. Challenge, in working for the FBI, you get to go up against the most sophisticated adversaries, the PLA, the MSS, the FSB, child predators, cartels, and you get to do things to those adversaries that uh, if you tried to do them in the private sector are probably illegal. Uh, so, uh, so those who embrace challenge, I think, are attracted to the mission. And then the third is just the sheer variety. Um, you can reinvent yourself, you know, a hundred times over in the course of a career in the FBI. And I think all those things combined uh, help make up for the fact that we can't pay nearly as well. Yeah. So. Right. So maybe to go back to your, your initial question, Condi, about how to re-engage with universities. Uh, I remember my first meeting probably five, six years ago with the, uh, the principals of the largest uh, Canadian research universities. And um, it was a very uh, one-way kind of engagement. Uh, people were very, very uh, uncomfortable with the discussion, you know, not that much back and forth. But as soon as the meeting finished, you know, literally only one of them wanted to have a one-on-one -on -one discussion because they, they knew the issues they were dealing with. They had a very much, a very sophisticated understanding of some of the challenges, except they were not comfortable talking about them. And when we talk about genuine engagement, you know, it's been, you know, then you continue, you engage, you engage to the point now that, you know, it's them asking us, you know, uh, how can we work together? And one of the concrete way in which we have done that in Canada is, you know, through the engagement and, and, and the intelligence service providing information to, to government, you know, we now have uh, new security guidelines for granting councils. So we're not telling people who they should hire or not hire, but we tell them, you know, if you're, if you're working for one of those seven universities in the PRC uh, associated with the uh, People's Liberation Army, you know, again, it's probably not a good idea if you're working in cutting edge, you know, uh, technology in, in, uh, in the university. Because what we have seen, and in this way, China has been very transparent, is that you know, their legislation, they are telling the world what they are. They also have been clear about the fact that, so Xi Jinping is chairing the uh, commission that integrates military and civilian technology together for the advantage of having the PLA surpass you know, uh, the United States you know, military and all of the, the, the Western military in terms of technology and, and capabilities. That's a stated goal. So it means everything that they're doing in our universities and in new technology, it's going back into a system very organized to create dual use uh, applications for the military. So that's why I think, you know, working in partnerships, we will not want to tell people what they should do or should not do, but we want to give them as much clarity as possible. And I think this is, you know, when we think we get it right, we know we're going to have to come back at it again in, in an iterative process. And I just want to also endorse what my colleagues have said about not stigmatizing uh, anyone. It is indeed the, the, uh, the policies and the, uh, the ideology of the Chinese Communist Party. 
It is the corrupt approaches of the, the Russian you know, regime under Putin that is the real problem. So we have to be very careful not to put, you know, uh, to uh, attach etiquettes to, to people. Thank you. Uh, two aspects, obviously, the open and free collaboration, which is fundamental to academia, that needs to be protected. It's one of our nation's greatest strengths. But sometimes I recognise in our business when we're talking about these threats, it's taken by commentators as we're anti that. We're not, just like we're not anti Chinese people. We need to protect this and how we work that as we explain the threats to the research and academic community. We've got to have a under shared understanding of your sector and the shared values. And when we see those alignment of values, we actually find great connection and we see positive um, benefits. Those things really do need um, to be protected. Um, we are not anti-innovation. And in my remarks, I deliberately talk about intellectual property theft at a scale which is unprecedented and expertise acquisition through legitimate open and free academic exchange joint ventures and acquisitions. And it's when those two things come together because the sinister element of China has a right to be prosperous. China has a right to innovate. Not trying to stop any of that. We're not trying to contain that. My nation has benefited greatly from China's rise and actually we'd like to benefit from that as it continues. Of course, there are some things which are unacceptable and wholesale intellectual property theft and mischievous acquisition of expertise that links those two together where the harm is amplified, that's what we're about. That's what we're trying to call out and that's what we're trying to work with you to prevent. Finally, on the um, recruitment size, like our colleagues here, we have no trouble attracting people. We go with the market on uh, losing people. That's understandable, but we're pretty good in that space. And when people do come to us, they know they work for an organisation where they can do things which they can't do anywhere else. And that sense of purpose, protecting Australia and Australians with threat to security is the thing that holds them. And when we do lose some of them, actually that's still okay because they go off into the private sector or elsewhere and they have a security mindset that benefits you all. That's a pretty damn good thing. Yeah. I'm going to ask Chris as our... our uh, uh, convener of this wonderful group to say the last word. I just want to say one thing, which is thank you for coming to the university to talk about these things. Um, I think I speak for all of my colleagues that uh, everybody wants to be on the right side of this. Uh, we want to do so in accordance with our values, uh, with the way that we've innovated over the years, but there are very few people any longer who are blind to what the PRC is doing. Um, as you said, Xi Jinping has made it pretty clear. Um, it's also the case, I often, uh, I've studied geopolitics all my life, uh, I've studied technology all my life, and um, these technologies are of a level and of an importance both in terms of the opportunity they present and the dangers that they present of something like we've never seen. But I sometimes do the thought experiment, what if Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union had won the nuclear race instead of the United States? We might have lived in a very different world. And so uh, these technologies are critical. And uh, this is a very different relationship for the United States and our allies. Uh, I'm often asked, is this a new Cold War? I tell people, no, it's, it's harder because the Soviet Union was a military giant, but it was an economic and technological midget. Uh, this time around, uh, we have a, comp a competitor, an adversary, 
who's technologically, militarily, and economically likely to be our equal. And so mobilizing free peoples uh, to do what we do best, which is to out-innovate them, uh, out-compete them, so that this comes out right for history, I think is very uh, critical. And thank you for what you do every day to try to make that true. And Chris, you'll get the last word. Well, thank you for that. I, I am grateful to, to Hoover and Stanford for, for helping us put on this unprecedented summit. Uh, I think uh, I actually, despite some of the things we've talked about, I'm actually quite optimistic, uh, which is not something you always hear uh, from security service heads. <laughs> but part of the reason I'm optimistic uh, is because I think we have advantages. We have advantages we have, you see it up here on this stage, uh, partnerships that are true partnerships, that are based on shared values, on mutual trust, on a commitment to collaboration, on, on genuine friendship. Uh, and that, uh, I will stack that kind of partnership against the sort of transactional partnerships that the Chinese government attempts to stand up with Russia or Iran any day of the week. And what we're seeing and have seen over the last few years is that same kind of partnership developing and growing and strengthening between our agencies and the private sector, our agencies uh, and universities, our agencies and our counterparts who are not maybe part of the Five Eyes, but who are close friends and partners of all of ours. Um, and the awareness that I see uh, across all those audiences and the desire to partner uh, against the threat uh, is something that makes me optimistic. Uh, I'm confident that partnerships based on collaboration and trust and teamwork are going to outperform coercion, control, and pressure in the long run. Right. Well, thank you very much. And please join me in thanking our guests. <laughs>